Good morning. I am Jen Mascott, co-director of the Seaboyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. And along with my co-director, Adam White, we are thrilled to welcome everybody here this morning for our symposium co-hosted by the George Mason Law Review, who's been amazing, very energetic and great students, one of whom you'll hear from here in a moment. Uh, but for our symposium today on Chevron on Trial, the Supreme Court and the future of agency, authority, and expertise, which is a very big issue. It's been a big issue for decades, but even more so this term, because the Supreme Court just in the last few days has taken up a second case this coming term where it will actually re-examine per the request of uh, some of the litigators before it, the, the question of Chevron deference and how agency action should be reviewed by uh, the judiciary. And we've got a lot of panels with some really um, top-notch scholars lined up today to discuss a lot of these issues. Someone yesterday in describing this panel to me, or, um, or, or the set of panels referred to it as the Super Bowl of scholars on the relevant issues. So I love that analogy. I think it's great. We've got folks uh, who, who are scholars affiliated with Yale, Columbia, Michigan, UVA, Vanderbilt, Chicago, Texas A&M, GW, Georgetown, and our own um, Professor Caroline Seacott from Scalia Law School, who is also the advisor of the Law Review. And so we're really glad to have a lot of Scalia Law um, participation today with the Law Review. Um, also, interestingly, um, the lead litigant for the party challenging uh, the Chevron deference doctrine in Loper Bright Enterprises is former, former Solicitor General Paul Clement, whom the Gray Center is proud to call its own Justice Story Distinguished Practitioner Residence. And then our Student Separation of Powers Clinic filed an amicus brief on behalf of a number of members of Congress in the case. So a lot of connections here today on the pra practical side and also on the scholarly side and also want to say a quick shout out to our Gray Center folks, Jace Linton, Raven Perry, Tyler Carter, David Wu, who have done yeoman's work in getting us ready for today. So without further ado, I'm going to turn us over for just a minute to the Law Review Editor-in-Chief for Volume 31, John Michelli, who's going to welcome you all on behalf of the Law Review, and then we'll get started with our first panel. Thank you, Professor. Uh, yes, good morning. Thank you all so much for being here. I just got to say, as an EIC, I feel like I have won uh, the symposium lottery, uh, not only because we got to partner with a great, uh, a great academic center like the Gray Center, but because we got to do it during the year when the court decided to take up Chevron deference. So it really feels like uh, the stars have aligned for us. And yes, I just have a couple of thank yous to give out. Uh, first and foremost, uh, to Megan Dill, sitting right over there. Megan is our symposium editor, editor this year for the Law Review, and she's really been the entire half of the equation for us so far in getting this set up. Uh, I know a lot of thoughtfulness went in uh, on her part into seeking out a diverse array of scholars today, So, if you, uh, which of course the Gray Center was receptive to. So uh, if you have an opportunity to introduce yourself and say hi, please do. Uh, and then of course, thank you, a special thank you to Professor Mascot and the Gray Center. Uh, we would not be here literally in the Mayflower Hotel uh, without their support. Um, just, and we would not have access to the really great lineup of scholars uh, that she mentioned without the work that she and Adam White have put into uh, building up the Gray Center as a place where serious scholarship gets done. Uh, I know it accrues to the benefit of, of the Law Review today. Uh, I know it accrues to the benefit of the Law School, and I'm, I'm hoping ultimately it accrues to the benefit of the Supreme Court as they uh, grapple with the, the question presented. So thank you uh, once again. And with that, I'll turn this over to Judge Paul Mady from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit to introduce our first set of panelists. Thank you so much, Judge. Thank you so much, Professor. Thanks to George Mason and the Center for hosting this exciting discussion for many. 
I imagine. Exciting doesn't naturally precede administrative law. We, of course, know better. It is always like that with the important stuff in the law and in life, isn't it? Most miss what is compelling, the ideas and the images that spring from imagination into reality. That's why we have nerds like us to see the next <laughs> cool thing before they do. Take comic books. When I was reading them back in 1984, I knew how exciting the stories were, but I can assure you it didn't do anything for my popularity. Comic book kids like me, well, we obsessed over the minutiae, labored over hypothetical battles between endlessly opposed powers, debated tirelessly about where the story would go next. So decades later, I was delighted to discover I could relive my childhood through Chevron. When it arrived in the 1980s, Chevron was also not very cool. But it caught the eyes of the fanboys and girls who dove into its pages, reading and rereading for hints, for clues, for questions. It took a bit, but eventually everyone caught on and joined the fun. We got a galaxy-spanning story with spin-offs worthy of a Hollywood franchise. Thrill to Mead Step Zero, jeer the darkness of Brand X and Talk America, grip your chair as Keezer adds five new factors to our deference, and then wonder if it's really sinister Skidmore back from beyond. <laughs> Just like comic books. In the 2010s, Chevron became the Marvel summer blockbuster of law school cases. And just like the great movies, say Iron Man through Black Panther, we consumed it endlessly, always hungry for more. And then, a few years later, everybody kind of just moved on from Marvel, right? The Eternals, Wakanda Forever, some Ant-Man sequel, yawn. And wouldn't you know it, the same thing sort of happened to Chevron. In what seemed like the blink of an eye, the most spectacular law school franchise ever just started to vanish. Sure, the studio tried to keep things going, resurrecting old classics that at least on the storyboard sounded pretty good. Marvel trotted out Doctor Strange and Shang-Chi, thoughtful, earnest, philosophical. They sought to ground the comic book world in something more serious. The true believers, they loved it, but it really never caught on very broadly. Sounds a lot like Gundy, the 2019 reimagination of that long-lost hero, the non-delegation doctrine. Gundy delivered a satisfying punch that seemed poised to relaunch a long-dormant franchise last seen during a quick one-year run in 1935, but despite the rave reviews, the sequel never imagined. And so the decade closed, and with it, much hope for our hero, whose powers, long separated, seemed forever diminished. But then, after the credits rolled and we were ready to leave the theater dejected, the movie restarted. And striding onto the screen appeared a creature of infinite potential. A character so major that it forces us to question everything we thought we knew about delegation and deference. And just before the lights went out, our mouths dropped as the major questions doctrine took the hands of non-delegation to create perhaps the most dynamic duo ever. Where will the writers of this saga take us next? What will be revealed in Looper and Relentless, and now it really does sound like I'm making up comic book titles, <laughs> we need not wait for next summer because we are fortunate to have the insights of three exceptional leaders to tackle these topics.
beginning with Kent Barnett. The Associate Dean of Academic Affairs and J. Alston Hosh, Professor of Law at the University of Georgia. Professor Barnett is a former trial and appellate litigator and now prolific scholar, co-author of a leading administrative law casebook, former chair of the administrative law section of the AALS, and an appointed public member of the Administrative Conference of the United States. We're also joined by Professor Christopher Walker, Professor of Law at the University of Michigan. His publications have appeared in law review articles across the country, and his book, Constraining Bureaucracy Beyond Judicial Review, is forthcoming from Cambridge University. He worked in all three branches of the federal government, talked for a decade at Ohio State, serves as a senior fellow of the Administrative Conference of the United States, and a past chair of the ABA section of administrative law. You can find him blogging at the Essential Notice and Comment. Finally, and next to me, is Thomas Merrill, the Charles Evan Hughes Professor of Law at Columbia. He is one of the most cited legal scholars in the United States and regularly pens amicus briefs on administrative interpretation. He served as Deputy Solicitor General, Counsel at Sidley and Austin, and as a co-reporter for the ALI's Restatement Fourth of Property. If all of that isn't enough, he has, as the kids like to say, literally written the book on Chevron. Each of our panelists will share their insights this morning and then we'll move to an open discussion after what I'm sure will be a lively exchange. We'll make sure to reserve ample time for your questions. And so with that, I'll turn it over to Professor Barnett. Well, thank you so much, Judge Mady. That may be the best introduction that I've ever had for a panel. I really enjoyed those remarks and the framing of Chevron. Chris and I had a contribution that we entitled Chevron and Stare Decisis for this, and it, it takes many of the arguments that we used in our amicus brief that we filed in support of neither party in Loper Bright. And as most of you know, Loper Bright is considering whether or not we should overturn Chevron deference, that is, whether or not court should defer to an agency's reasonable interpretation of a statute that is ambiguous that the agency administers. And I would think it's fair to say that, that Chris and I were both fairly um, agnostic about Chevron, kind of at the start of our careers. And then we began doing research separately and together with it. And based on that research and some of the development in the court's doctrine, we came around to the idea that Chevron as a matter of stare decisis should stay in place. So the court should not overturn it. And I'll begin by talking through some of those stare decisis arguments. And then Chris is going to turn to some of the, what we think are the more hidden or the less noticed types of rule of law values that Chevron promotes that we uncovered in our research. So I'll begin this framing in, a, in an important place that I think gets overlooked with Loper Bright. That is, this is a question about whether we are overturning a doctrine. And what's going to be critical there is how do we think about stare decisis? And what is really important here is that the court has essentially told us exactly how to think about stare decisis for something exactly like Chevron. They did this in a case called Kaiser v. Wilkie, which concerned really Chevron's kissing cousin, our deference, which is a, a form of deference where one defers to the reasonable agency interpretations of ambiguous regulations as opposed to statutes. And upholding uh, our deference, the court said we apply already super strong statutory stare decisis. Indeed, it has 
enhanced force. It's super duper statutory stare decisis that we apply to something like this, which is deference to an executive's uh, legal interpretation because of three factors that all applied in our and also apply here with Chevron. First, that the court would not be overruling a single case, but instead a long line of precedents. Well, depending on how you think about this, we're either overruling a line of some form of reasonable this review going back at least until the 1940s, we could take it back to the founding, where depending on where one wants to start, or at least until 1984. And since then, we have had several other cases that have developed from it that have given more dimension to Chevron and assumed its uh, validity, whether we're thinking about Meade, whether we're thinking about Christensen, whether we're thinking about the city of Arlington, Brand X, all of these cases that have created, as to the second factor, a significant place that pervades, in the court's words, the whole corpus of administrative law. Well, just like our deference, which applies generally to all agencies' actions, with some limited exceptions, Chevron does the same thing. Finally, the court asked whether or not the doctrine would allow relitigation of any decision based on its framework. And here it would with certain decisions. It would be those decisions where the court found that an agency's interpretation was reasonable under step two of Chevron when the court had not, I'm sorry, when Congress had not clearly provided its intent in the statute. That is the same thing that existed in our deference to, with that same group of cases that would have to be re subject to relitigation. So we already have this place where we've got this super strong form of stare decisis. Well, of course, stare decisis can still be overcome in certain instances. One could be if the court just got Chevron wrong as a matter of theory. And the key theory that, that the Chevron court pushed was one of delegated authority to interpret. And so what Chevron did was give interpretive primacy to agencies to interpret ambiguous provisions or gaps in a statute. And and there was quite a bit of debate about whether this was a fictional presumption that was created. And I had done some work several years ago where I tried to look at instances in which Congress had spoken on notions of judicial deference. It very rarely does so, and, and I give that as a significant caveat. The, the Congress doesn't actually talk about deference, really writ large or in smaller areas very often, but it does do so. And when I looked at those cases, it all indicated that Congress was comfortable with Chevron as the appropriate theory. The key area where you could look at this is first, the fact that Congress has refused to abrogate Chevron numerous times, both before Chevron was even decided and what was referred to as the bumpers amendments from uh, a senator from Arkansas, all the way through to 2017, 2019, and even 2023, it, it still hasn't passed when even after going through the House. And those recent dates are important because the court, when talking about stare decisis, found it relevant, as with our deference, that even after the court had determined that there were questions about the underlying doctrine, Congress had refused to act. Well, it's the exact same thing with Chevron. Congress also relies upon the presumption of Chevron. So if we turn to one of its most significant acts in recent memory, the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform Act, there's a striking provision in that, in that act where for the OCC, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, they can make certain preemption decisions over state consumer financial protection laws. And Congress did something new there that it hadn't done before. 
it said that courts were to review those preemption decisions under the Skidmore factors, and it listed the Skidmore factors. It then had another provision that was like a savings clause that said that the, the OCC's preemption ruling does not, quote, affect the doctrine that a court may afford the OCC's interpretations. Well, what is that deference that a court may afford? Well, if you turn to the Senate report that was provided, the Senate was clear that it understood that Chevron deference was the default and it wanted Chevron to apply to all of the other decisions by the OCC. Indeed, there were dissenters to this section of Dodd-Frank. There were Republican senators that dissented, but you know what their dissent was? That Chevron should have applied to everything, that we shouldn't have used Skidmore for it. They understood that as the better rule to move forward with uh, Congressional drafting. Also in Dodd-Frank, we see even a more reticulated form of this. Uh, Congress appeared aware of a long simmering debate about whether agencies should get Chevron deference when more than one agency interprets a statute, or has, I'm sorry, has administrative authority over a statute. And Congress once again did something really interesting. It created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And after it did that, it started reallocating power over consumer protection statutes. It gave some instances where it said this one agency should be treated as if it were the only administering agency. Why would it do that? Because only one agency would get Chevron deference. Other times it says, treat every one of those agencies as if it's the administering agency. Why? So all of them are eligible for Chevron deference. So you have that sitting there of Congress that appears aware that Chevron is the default rule, has adopted it, and has refused to abrogate it. We might say it's better instead to look at the time that the APA was enacted, 1946. And ultimately, where Chris and I came down on this is that there's no clear answer as to what Congress in 1946 thought about deference. And one of the participants today, Professor Aditya Bamzai, I'm sure we'll go into some more detail on this, but he has an argument that the APA is best read to provide uh, a, a de novo form of review, and indeed, that's what the drafters were trying to do. But that has been uh, certainly argued against, if not rebutted, by professors Ron Levin and Cass Sunstein, who, who look at this and say that the evidence is much more muddled. If anything, it's stronger to suggest that Congress was intending deference to continue, and indeed, there is a dog that didn't bark problem in that the court kept using deference after the APA and no one had any strong opposition to it. And forms of deference, although somewhat inconsistently until Chevron, continued to pervade administrative law for the coming decades. The final reason that stare decisis may not be terribly significant could be if Chevron violates the Constitution, of course. And there are two key arguments that are being made. One, an Article I argument. A second, an Article III argument. And I'll very quickly um, deal with, with both of these. The Article I argument is that Chevron encourages a broader delegation to agencies and creates a non-delegation problem. But if there is a non-delegation problem, it's not Chevron that's causing it. It's the delegation of too much power. And and one can patrol those boundaries by looking for an intelligible principle. Or if one wants to take something that's closer to the Gorsuchian view, that we will look to see whether Congress has indeed decided important subjects or created general provisions for agencies. 
But even under a strict reading of the non-delegation doctrine, going back to Chief Justice Marshall, agencies have the power to, quote, fill up the details. Well, Chevron allows all of this, as long as we have a standard that is sufficient under the non-delegation doctrine, and Congress has not been clear with its actual intent, then Congress has allowed the agencies to fill up those details. Finally, we have an Article III argument. And this is the one I think that is the most underdeveloped, but we have seen some purchase um, on the Supreme Court with this argument. And the argument is, is fairly simple, that Chevron violates the idea that uh, the courts say what the law is, a la Marbury versus Madison. And that's really it. We cite one case and we move on. But Article Three is so much more complex than just Marbury versus Madison. For instance, we've had some form of reasonableness review going back to the founding. Indeed, even in Marbury itself, the court refused to grant mandamus on matters that fell within the discretion of the, of the executive, instead only granting a remedy to something that was ministerial. Well, if you think about that, that's much like Chevron. If Congress has required something of Congress, then Congress has to do that thing. But if Congress hasn't done that, then the executive is within a discretionary space. For those who argue that there's an Article III problem with Chevron, there has to be much more than just citing Marbury. You have to come up with the theory for why, for instance, mandamus was appropriate at that point, but other forms of review aren't appropriate especially when Chevron's remedies look a bit like mandamus, or they're at least like injunctive relief, a set-aside reef under the APA. Why is that different than what we saw with mandamus? The final way to think about this, too, is there is an entire world of Article III um, doctrine that's quite complex, but one key thing it does is that it asks over and over in Article III whether or not Congress has a greater power. If it has a greater power, then it has a lesser power. It uses greater and lesser power reasoning. Well, one of the greater powers Congress has that the court has never had a categorical objection to is that it can stop review of agency actions. In other words, create no review provisions. Well, if you can have no review, it's really hard to see how creating reasonableness review, which is significantly broader, creates an Article III issue. And that's especially true when Congress in other areas does not permit plenary review of federal courts, such as with the review of state judgments in habeas or arbitration decisions, even those that are required under a uh, statutory scheme. So we take all of those together, these arguments about intent, whether the more recent Congress, the Congress of the APA, and the constitutional arguments, and ultimately say that stare decisis strongly supports Chevron deference continued existence. My thanks for the invitation uh, to the George Mason uh, folks and the Grace Center, and uh, thanks uh, to you, Judge uh, Maddie, for explaining my Chevron addiction that I've had. Uh, <laughs> sort of analogous to a comic book addiction. It's better than some addictions, I guess, but uh, I had thought when I wrote the book in 2022 that I was going to be cured of this. I didn't have to join Chevron uh, Professors Anonymous or something like that, but uh, <laughs> it looks like that was premature. Um, let me start with a few words about the decision a couple weeks ago by the Supreme Court to grant cert in this case called Relentless versus, Relentless versus Department of Commerce. My colleague, Philip Hamburger at Columbia, uh, was one of the um, lawyers through the uh, new Civil Liberties Alliance that represents the uh, petitioner in Relentless. And I said, hey, Philip, what's going on here? Why are you, why are you uh, jumping on board with the uh, Loper-Bride issue in this case? And he said, it's very simple. He said, our client, 
who owns a uh, herring fishing boat and was very upset by this regulation by the uh, Commerce Department uh, is eager to gain relief, and so we wanted to track the questions presented in Loper Bright to make sure that whatever happened in that case also applies to our clients. So, no big strategic objective here on the part of the petitioners by uh, filing that second case. Um, uh, we had some uh, amusing discussion at uh, dinner last night about uh, which of these two cases, Loper Bright or Relentless, will be the, the caption case, uh, if, assuming that they're consolidated together for argument and decision. I hope the report of decisions does not make it relentless because you can imagine all the jokes and all the quirky, uh, cutesy, law review article titles about the relentless doctrine, you know. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Um, the interesting question is why the court granted relentless as opposed to simply uh, holding it uh, to dispose of in light of Loper Bright. Uh, <clears throat> the most obvious explanation is that the court just was being courteous to Justice Jackson, who was recused from a Loper Bright, but not from Relentless. Relentless comes out of the First Circuit rather than the D.C. Circuit. So that's the simple explanation, probably the best explanation. Uh, a more interesting, somewhat strategic explanation would be that there's some segment of the court, maybe uh, Chief Justice Roberts, um, uh, that would like to uh, reach a kind of intermediate position here, not overruling Chevron, but tweaking it. Uh, and he may think he needs some more votes uh, to reach that outcome, and Justice Jackson might be one of those votes. So that's a possibility. Um, another thing that's been raised here is, you know, uh, how do we know the Supreme Court's not just going to duck this question again? The, some of you may know that the court has not itself applied the Chevron doctrine in its classic form uh, since 2016. Uh, and in, in more recent years, uh, they had, haven't mentioned Chevron at all. Uh, in the uh, 2022 year, uh, there were something like seven cases in which the parties vigorously uh, uh, pressed on the court the need to modify or overturn the Chevron doctrine. And Chevron hardly appears at all in any of the opinions that the court rendered that year. The sort of Chevron is treated like the crazy uncle in the attic that no one wants to mention. Um, so is, it, is the court just going to do that again? Uh, decide Loper Bright slash relentless on the merits, uh, de novo, pretending that the agency doesn't exist, uh, uh, and, and kick the can down the road one more time? I think it's unlikely. Uh, uh, the court has, uh, as was mentioned in the review of comic books, uh, uh, recently articulated the major questions doctrine. Um, uh, there's no way you can construe the uh, regulation at issue in Loper Bright Relentless as a major question. It involves, you know, expenditures by people that have herring boats in the uh, herring fisheries in the North Atlantic. Um, uh, I also think that the court was very careful to grant, limit the grant to question one in both cases. The question one asks the court to overturn or overrule Chevron. Um, or to uh, hold that Chevron does not apply to silences in the statute where the, the same issue is expressly addressed elsewhere in the statute. Um, the latter uh, half of that question, I think, could conceivably result in a narrower decision, but uh, I agree with uh, Carolyn Seacott's paper that it's implausible to carve out an exception for silences because any ambiguity could ultimately be construed as a silence uh, of sorts. 
So I, I think the court has sort of boxed itself in. Uh, it's deliberately granted certain these cases because I think it's, the court must be very, very aware that the lower courts and the agencies are quite perplexed about the status of Chevron given the court's prolonged silence and its uh, it, it development of the major questions doctrine. So I think, I think the best betting here would be that the court is planning to say something significant about Chevron in these cases. Um, uh, my, what is my position here? I, I filed an amicus brief in Loper Bright as well. Uh, uh, my position is basically um, uh, mend it, don't end it, or fix it, don't nix it, or whatever you want to say. Um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, why, why, why is that? Uh, uh, let me just briefly say what I think. Um, um, I think, um, why, why mend it? I think, as I will hopefully discuss very briefly and, and at greater length uh, in the paper that I submitted, uh, that Chevron has been revealed to have some significant problems. Uh, uh, and this gives the court an opportunity to at least ameliorate those problems or do something about some of those problems. Uh, so uh, that's why I would uh, take the amend it rather than, than reaffirm it or end it position. Um, uh, also, I think it's very implausible as a, as a matter of realistic litigation strategy to think that after all the fulminations about Chevron coming from Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch primarily, and the sort of conservative legal movement's uh, uh, decision, I guess, to hyperventilate about Chevron as the symbol of the deep state that they think is taking over our country. Uh, it's implausible to think the six justices, six conservative justices, are not going to do something to tweak Chevron, at least, uh, going forward. They're not going to reaffirm the classic Chevron doctrine. Um, uh, why not end it? Um, uh, uh, multiple reasons. Uh, one is that uh, uh, a whole lot of uh, human capital has been uh, invested in understanding Chevron, both by lower court judges and by agency lawyers and private lawyers uh, litigating against agencies, um, and uh, learning the Chevron two-step, et cetera, and the various uh, exceptions to it. And it would seem to require a pretty good reason to just throw this overboard uh, in one fell swoop. Um, uh, also, it's not clear what would replace it. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the court doesn't seem to have a very clear idea of what sort of deference doctrine, if any, it would uh, replace it with, other than de novo review, which uh, I agree with other people is not uh, not doable for the lower courts, maybe for the Supreme Court. Um, and and I think so. Um, some kind of deference doctrine is necessary. We've always had one going back to the beginning of the Republic, and uh, 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 the court needs to. If the court were to replace Chevron, it would have to invest a lot of effort and time in defining what that replacement is, and there'd be transition costs and so forth. Not clear that all that's uh, worthwhile. Finally, I think the court is treading on thin ice with the legal community, if not the public more generally, in terms of a series of dramatic and highly visible uh, changes in the law that have been made in the last few years. Um, Alexander Hamilton famously observed in Federalist Number 78 that the court is essentially a powerless institution. It has neither the sword nor the purse. Uh, the source of the court's authority to command obedience from lower courts and everyone else is the perception that the court means it when it says it and it sticks to its guns uh, about what its understanding of settled principles of law are. Um, uh, to put it somewhatly overdramatically, but I think not totally wrong, uh, if the court doesn't follow its own uh, precedents, no one else will either. Uh, so I think for those reasons, uh, I would support not uh, over overturning Chevron outright. Uh, what about stare decisis more particularly? I do not think that uh, the court has been... Uh, 
had, has made many statements about stare decisis in the statutory context and, and in the constitutional context. Chevron does not really involve either the interpretation of a statute or a constitutional issue per se. Um, it, we, it is what I would call a question, uh, a doctrine about legal method, how, how courts should proceed when reviewing legal interpretations that agencies offer in administering their own statutes. Um, it's pure common law. Uh, the court did not cite, cite the Administrative Procedure Act. It should have uh, in Chevron, but it, had, it paid no attention to the Administrative Procedure Act, Section 706, throughout the nearly 30-plus years in which Chevron was being applied. Only late, uh, toward the end in 2015, did uh, some reference to the APA start creeping up indirectly in some of these cases. Um, um, so it's not statutory stare decisis, um, and it's not constitutional stare decisis. What the heck is it? The court has said very little about uh, the kind of degree of respect that the court itself and other courts should give to questions of legal method. Uh, Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh, had a brief statement about this in his little essay on stare decisis uh, in the Ramos versus Louisiana case, but he didn't elaborate. Um, there's a big, thick book about precedent that has been published by Brian Garner. It's about 900 or so pages long. There's like maybe one page on uh, stare decisis to questions of legal method. So we're this kind of uncharted uh, at this point. My own view, I guess, would be that it would depend on whether the question of legal method is settled, well settled, or not. Uh, so on the well-settled end of things, you'd have something like the norms that govern appeals courts and reviewing questions of fact by trial courts. Um, uh, that's a well settled, and I think a, a lower court, a, a, an appeals court, court of appeals that decided to find the facts de novo would be reversed by the Supreme Court as a matter of uh, precedent and stare decisis. Um, on the other side of things, uh, you have well, uh, less settled propositions like whether or not you can use legislative history to interpret a statute. The idea seems to be that every judge or justice can decide for him or herself whether to use legislative history or not. There's no binding uh, principle here that's uh, controlling as a matter of law on anybody else. Chevron is somewhat in between. Chevron was uh, uh, considered to be a well-settled doctrine uh, for many decades. Uh, the court actually reversed lower court decisions for failing, failing to apply the Chevron doctrine. Uh, suggesting that it was regarded as a principle of law. Uh, on the other hand, Chevron has been modified several times, as Kent has already mentioned, uh, and that should give uh, the legal community a clear understanding that um, uh, other changes are possibly forthcoming uh, in the future. So uh, I think the Kaiser versus uh, Wilkie case is the right, <laughs> the right model, uh, as Kent suggested, for the degree of respect uh, that the court should give to Chevron. In other words, preserve the doctrine in the interest of continuity, the basic framework, uh, but um, don't uh, overturn it. Uh, uh, make some modifications, but don't overturn it. Um, I had a lot more to say, but I guess my time's up, so I'm going to turn over the mic to Christopher. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I'm going to, I love the title of the symposium of Chevron on Trial, because in my mind, you can kind of come into that different ways. I was a civil litigator, so I would think, well, is this like preponderance of the evidence, you know, 50% plus one to Chevron, you know, is, you know, do we keep it or not? Uh, but that's really not what we're dealing with, right? I mean, stare decisis is in the backdrop. This is a bedrock precedent. So we at least have, you know, I would think of stare decisis maybe of like clear and convincing evidence might be the normal kind of view of if we're trying to map it on to, to, to litigation. But as Ken and I argue in our paper, and, I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'll disagree just briefly with, with Professor Merrill, uh, when it comes to statutory stare decisis, which I think that is the proper framework here, 
it's more like beyond a reasonable doubt, maybe not quite there. Uh, and the reason why is that Congress, it's, it's interpreting a statute, uh, Section 706 of the APA, even though the Chevron decision itself did not say that. The court said that in Meade, the way that Congress has reacted to it, whenever they want to decide whether to get rid of it, it's separation of powers act is to amend the APA. Uh, it's the way that we understand its place in the administrative state. And so it really is, the burden's really, really high in my mind. Uh, and why is that? Because Congress can change it. This is a separation of powers issue now. This is a doctrine that's been on the books for decades. Congress legislates against the backdrop, but as Kent said, if you look at how congressional staffers and agency rule drafters use it, it's the number one tool they use um, uh, when they're interpreting statutes, drafting statutes, and drafting regulations. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more on my remarks today it's what the lower courts have been using uh, uh, you know, forever. It's, 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 the, it's the run. It, it is what we do. Uh, and if we had another study, I'm sure you could also say it's how regulated industry has operated for the last 40 years. And so it's a deeply embedded precedent. Kent and I argue it's a statutory precedent. Um, and, and for that reason, that really is where we have to begin on what's on trial. You know, what tri kind of trial are we holding, I think, is a really important component of that. I want to talk about, about the rule of law values, though, of Chevron. And the ones that you normally talk about are a congressional delegation that Congress has decided to delegate that ambiguity to agencies, either implicitly or expressly. Comparative agency expertise, that they know how to deal with these issues of policy implementation when there's an ambiguity in a statute better than a court would. And that they have a process to do that through notice and comment rulemaking. We can have debates about adjudication, you know, maybe another day, uh, that, that involves the public, that leverages the expertise about the agency and the public in ways that courts just can't remotely do uh, to implement statutory schemes. But the two that are left off the table uh, and not given as much attention uh, is uniformity in federal law and political accountability. And you'll see that uniformity in federal law is, I'm going to show you a bunch of stats that, that Ken and I did when we looked at, we read every single Chevron decision over an 11-year period that the lower courts had, the circuit courts had, had, where they'd used Chevron. And, you know, one of the big arguments you see in the, in the amicus briefing against Chevron uh, is that it's an unworkable standard. Uh, and I think Tom hit it like the nail on the head well, what's the replacement? <laughs> you know, is that actually going to be workable or not? Uh, and, and, and more importantly, as I'll show you in a second, it, it is a workable standard. Uh, uh, and at least it was when our data set was done 10 years ago. You can maybe say it's changed a little bit in, in the years since with, with the changing composition of the court, with the way the Trump administration and the Biden administration invoke and use Chevron in litigation. Uh, but that, this is like this idea of political accountability, the second value, uh, is also kind of tied to national uniformity in some way. So this is right out of Chevron. Judges aren't experts in the field. They're not part of either political branch. So courts sometimes have to resolve competing political interests. That's really not what they're supposed to do. Uh, instead, look at agencies. Uh, you have a president that heads the executive branch. You have Congress that exercises oversight and legislative control over those agencies. And so if we have to decide between the court or agencies uh, on who should implement statutes that are ambiguous, interpret them, um, it should be agencies that are more politically accountable. Uh, and there have been prior, uh, oh, and, and, and 
when we did our work on this, I kind of decided to troll a little bit. And I went on the Law and Liberty website and published an essay called The Federal Society's Deference Dilemma. Um, and, and the point, and this is what I was trying to make, is that you kind of have like two different views on, on, the, on the right about what judges should do. Uh, and I'm way, way oversimplifying a lot of granularity. But you have those that kind of are liberty-driven, you know, and the courts are there to kind of you know, plow through and recognize the rights the Constitution has recognized. And then you have maybe the six of us that are left that are more judicial conservatives, deference to political branches, stare decisis, move slowly, um, let, uh, let, let elected officials take the lead on major, you know, major policy decisions. Uh, and, and I kind of just said that you know, Chevron is one of those areas where, where you have this kind of conflict, whether to get rid of it or not, or to keep it. I mean, it was originally a very conservative doctrine to allow the Reagan administration to, to deregulate. And there was a great uh, um, lecture that just Judge Kavanaugh gave uh, at Heritage before he was nominated to the Supreme Court, where he says, my goal is to help make statutory interpretation a more neutral and partial process where like cases are treated alike by judges of all ideological stripes, regardless of the issue and regardless of the identity of the parties in the case. I'm like, yes, Chevron, yes, you know, like, it's gonna preserve, you know, get judges out of politics. And no, uh, the problem with certain applications of Chevron and so the whole talks about how, not the whole talk, but a lot of the talks about how Chevron in, in, in increases politics, judicial decision making. And that's where canonized research come in. I'm, I'm going to just quickly um, kind of go through what we did. And again, this is 10 years ago. I do think things have changed. Maybe we could talk about that a little bit in the Q&A. Uh, but we looked at every single case in the Court of Appeals that cited Chevron or Skidmore using broad terms. So we had about 1,600 uh, statutory interpretations in those cases that were about 13, about 1,400 relevant cases. Uh, and our goal here, kind of the big picture, which may you may love, or you know, you can use this slide whether you're pro or anti-Chevron, is that Chevron really matters uh, in the lower courts. At least it did during that 10-year period. Uh, you know, the difference in win rate when you had Chevron or you didn't, you know, it's 77 77% when Chevron, when the Chevron deference framework applied. Uh, and if you went to De Novo, it was 40%, and Skidmore is 56. Um, there are methodological warts we can talk through in selection effects, but kind of give a sense of where that's at. Um, the other big takeaway is when you get to step two, the agency almost always wins, which shouldn't surprise anybody else who've litigated or, or read cases up at almost 95% of the cases, they, they almost win. But what we are more interested in is the political story. In other words, if courts are completely political and Chevron does not constrain, You'd expect a really liberal panel to always agree with liberal interpretations and a really conservative panel to always disagree with liberal, liberal interpretations and vice versa. That's the attitudinal model of judicial decision making. As opposed to if Chevron is playing a role in constraining, you'd expect politics are always still going to matter to some degree. Um, but you'd expect a more flat curve. And so let me show you what we found in our data. And this, by the way, we did the second paper that came out in Vanderbilt with, with our co-author, Christina Boyd, who's a political scientist at the University of Georgia. And, and so when you look at when Chevron applies uh, to liberal interpretations, the negative is, I'm not, I didn't do this on purpose, or, or the liberals, so like the most liberal panel is like your negative 0.5, and the agency wins about 90% of the time. Your most conservative panel, so three judge, very conservative panel, the agency wins, I think, about 78% of the time. So there, there's a little bit of a difference. Um, um, politics does matter even under Chevron, but take a look when Chevron doesn't apply. It's an 82% or so win rate 
for the most liberal panel of a liberal interpretation, and we're down, I think, at 24% um, for a more conservative, completely conservative. Uh, so when Chevron doesn't apply, you see the political model really, really kind of come out. Uh, on the conservative ones, it's not quite as much, and conservative interpretations don't win as much. And I think some of that's immigration, and that actually does show up on our study. Both conservatives and uh, both and liberals just don't like immigration adjudications. But you're at like 50% when Chevron applies for the most liberal panel, so it's a coin flip, up to about, I think, 64% when it doesn't. Or sorry, for most conservative one. And if you take out Chevron, the cases where they don't apply Chevron, you're at 22% uh, versus about 50%. So you kind of see kind of our bottom line you know, takeaway here is that if you care about judges not being political or being perceived as political, which is a value that a lot of us judicial conservatives carry a lot about, um, Chevron really does play an important role. The bigger takeaway is if you care about national uniformity in law, predictability in law, um, as Justice Scalia said in City of Arlington versus FCC, Chevron has a stabilizing force because it forces the lower courts to more likely agree with the national interpretation that an agency has advanced. And these are just two really important rule of law values that you have in Chevron um, that the court really, I think, has to grapple with more if it's going to get into the policy debate along those lines. Now, I think within 48 hours after I posted this little trollish blog post <laughs> on Law and Liberty, Philip Hamburger, I'm gonna skip the whistleblower fix. Philip Hamburger posts his response, um, um, Chevron bias illustrated by statistics. Um, in other words, all of our data shows that Chevron biases uh, courts to rule for the government. Um, and my response is, yeah. I mean, not that it biases it, but Chevron is a tool to bring stability to the law to allow for elected representatives to play a larger role in how statutes are implemented uh, and to remove courts from being political and letting their kind of role play. So sure, I mean, that's one of the main reasons we have Chevron. Uh, and, and I think those are good reasons, uh, not that it's biased, but that it encourages uniformity law, discourages politics, judicial decision making. Uh, and that's something we should, the court's gonna have to really you know, consider seriously. Now that doesn't mean that's enough to keep Chevron. I think stare decisis plays a really big role here. Um, and some people might value stare decisis less than others, although every member of the Supreme Court, when it comes to statutory stare decisis, has, you know, so, ha, has a view that it, that it matters. Um, but that's kind of where we're at. Now, I want to just briefly, and maybe we'll get back into the Q&A. The last thing we say in our, in, in our article is the court's already striking the right balance. If, of the concerns that petitioners raise, the court's already responding to them. More searching step one, whether that's clear enough for Gorsuch or for Kavanaugh, takes uh, Chevron footnote nine seriously. Kagan, for the court, has encouraged uh, a, a more searching, arbitrary, and capricious review under step two. And then, of course, as Tom mentioned, we've got this new major questions doctrine that's going after the big you know, value judgments uh, and, and making Congress speak clearly on those. So what we have left of Chevron is when a statute is truly ambiguous, when the agency has acted reasonably and not arbitrarily, and they're dealing with implementation details and not major questions, I don't know what's left to complain about Chevron as a policy matter in the world that we live in today. Thanks to all the panelists for those remarks, and I'd like to sort of start by picking up on that last point. You know, one, one of the, it touches upon something you just said, Professor Walker, but I also want to rope in something that um, Professor Merrill mentioned. Why 
why are we here? Why is de novo review, Professor Merrill, as you said, not doable? Um, why is it that, as Chevron said, judges are not experts in the field when that field seems to be the interpretation of statutes, which I suspect at least some of us think is, is the whole point of the job. So what, what exactly is the complication that is unique to the interpretations of agency action versus mine run of statutory construction? All right, uh, let me take a crack at that. Um, I do think Chevron uh, promotes uniformity relative to de novo review because uh, if you had all uh, uh, 13 courts of appeals we have, is that right? Um, deciding uh, these issues uh, de novo, you would inevitably have lots of um, disagreements about how to interpret these administrative statutes. Um, and I don't think the Supreme Court, which is the other institution that promotes uniformity of federal law, has the decisional capacity to review all the circuit conflicts uh, that would emerge if every court of appeals was, if the issue was common enough, let's say the Social Security statute or something like that, issue was common enough so that they had different interpretations coming out of every circuit. The court doesn't have the capacity to sort out all the conflicts, and it would take time to sort out all the conflicts. So I do think that uh, having a kind of default position that in, in, in cases of uncertainty that uh, you go with the agency, as Justice Stevens said in his conference comments in the Chevron case, um, uh, would promote, does promote uniformity uh, relative to de novo review. Uh, de novo review, if done seriously, uh, with a statute like the Medicare and Medicaid statutes, um, uh, as the court did in a couple of cases in 2022, uh, is a very time-consuming uh, task. You know, you have to go through these sort of extremely convoluted uh, statutory provisions and, and weigh lots of different variables. And uh, um, uh, again, I, I, I don't think the lower courts that face a lot of these cases really have the decisional capacity that the Supreme Court does to do a, a really meaningful and correct de novo review exercise. The final point to make, which I think is made strongly in the paper that uh, Vermeule uh, presented to the conference, is that there is no inconsistency between de novo review and deference uh, to agency interpretations if you take seriously the proposition uh, that de novo review reveals that in fact Congress did actually de delegate to the agency authority to resolve the, the provision in question. This is probably the biggest theme in my book uh, that uh, Chevron talks about explicit and implicit delegations uh, there's no evidence, I think, that Justice Stevens thought implicit delegations means that whenever the statute requires interpretation, you automatically defer to the agency. I think what he thought was that if you do a serious exercise in review, as they did in Chevron, and conclude that Congress had implicitly but actually delegated authority to the agency to decide the question, then it's appropriate as a matter of de novo review to defer to the agency. So I, I do think that there's, a there's an ultimate consistency between de novo review and um, and de deference per Chevron. I yeah, I, I, no, go ahead. I mean, I, I, mean, I just say, you know, having read, you know, 15, 1600 of these, you know, circuit court decisions, I mean, so many of them, and, and I think Adrian Vermeule's like done a Twitter like thread on this too. I mean, so many of these are like, what is fair and reasonable? What is an acceptable level of risk? What is the best system of emission reduction? It might not be the best example from the best. You know, like, like, 
Sure, like you could, you could say, well, that, that, that's subject to more multiple interpretations. A court could say the best interpretation is this, but why, why would they know that stuff better than others? I mean, a lot of this is more interstitial implementation details. Uh, and, and, that, and if you view Chevron as that, and I have to say, I think Justice Ka Kavanaugh's view of Chevron is kind of like that. Uh, in, in other words, he, the only way he would change Chevron, at least in his Kaiser concurrence, is that he would say, if the court thinks there is a best interpretation, like an actual interpretation that like, the law says is the law, like treat step one seriously, say what the best interpretation is, and don't give ambiguity. But if not, we're in policymaking realm now, and arbitrary and capricious review applies. And I guess my slight dis disagreement with that, having read a lot of these circuit court decisions that are highly technical and, and trying to implement statutes that, 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 that clearly leave some room uh, for, for scientific and other expertise, is that trying to guess the best interpretation can get really political. That makes sense? I mean, at some point, the law runs out. And for me, the law runs out a lot, more er a lot earlier than, than it did for Justice Scalia and then for maybe Justice Kavanaugh. So I think some of the debate is really about do they have to decide what the best interpretation is? And like, at what point do they say, are we, do we, in Justice Kavanaugh's book review and the Harvard Law Review, is like, do we have to be 60% sure, certain that it's unambiguous? Do we have to be 90%? Uh, and I would be much closer to 90% than 50% than plus one uh, for the reasons we kind of already talked about, the rule of law values of Chevron. One quick thought on that. You know, there's, there's been much made over the difficulty of figuring out what is ambiguous, and Chevron leads us in this place where we have to figure out, you know, how, how deep should the inquiry be? How do we know whether we should be moving to step two or not? Maybe it's the contracts professor in me talking, but we already do this. We do it with contracts. It's a legal question whether or not a contract is ambiguous. There is some point where we have to have some faith in the judges that they can make that kind of determination because they make it in other places as well. Um, but, but to Judge Mady's question, I, I think a lot of this actually comes down to the different ways we think about judging. And so do you take a model that is often referred to as the legal model, which is this great faith in judges, they can put all politics aside, and I think pushing that a little further, which you might see more out of judicial conservatives, that you can find a right answer. There is a platonic correct answer sitting out there, whether you can uncover it through originalism in the Constitution or through some form of use of canons and uh, forms of interpretation when looking at statutes. That's one side. The other side is going to be more attitudinal. That is that politics are going to have a role in how courts resolve disputed issues. And I think that would be especially true in cases concerning agencies, which are inherently going to be issues that are more political. So to the extent you think the attitudinal model does have some purchase on courts, then then I think this is the area you may be the most concerned about what the effects are going to be longer term. Is the problem politics or is it diligence? Um, and I, I, I wonder that because in, in my experience, recent and old, what I have often seen is, and this picks up on Justice Kavanaugh's point, that this phrase ambiguous has become an off-ramp from the highway of interpretation for courts that may, for whatever reason, wish to not engage in the sometimes complex problems of interpretation, a point that Justice Kagan highlighted in Kaiser, that just because something's hard doesn't mean it's ambiguous. But yet, the, the, 
the reporters are filled with cases that say, oh, the statute says you must make a, an effort. Oh, well, who knows what that means, so let's just defer to the agency. Um, and so I, I, wonder, I wonder if anything will change after, after Loper, right? Won't, won't judges face with the next complex bubble concept say, okay, we're engaging in whatever the new Loper-Bright standard is, but what we really do is just read the government's brief and then say, that's what we've arrived at as an independent determination. So, I mean, isn't this just sort of Skidmore all the way down, call it what you want, but how do you, how do you force courts to disregard an agency interpretation um, with some sort of methodological imperative? I mean, I have to go back to work on Monday, so I really yeah, yeah, need an answer there. to this. <laughs> I mean, Justice Kennedy, uh, before he retired, uh, offered a separate opinion in which he said that he was increasingly, he was a big proponent of Chevron for years. He offered a concurring opinion when he said that he was increasingly disturbed by what he perceived to be the reflexive application of deference by lower courts uh, uh, based on a cursory analysis. So that, that's an example of a Supreme Court justice who is perceiving what you call the lack of diligence as opposed to political meddling. Um, and I think that is a serious problem. I, I would hope that the court, at a minimum, would reiterate that in any case where there's a fair doubt about this, the judges have to decide de novo whether the agency is A, acting within the scope of its regulatory authority, and B, whether this is a provision that Congress has implicitly wanted them to interpret. Um, that's going to require more effort than the two-step Chevron doctrine in its classic form. The classic form of the Chevron doctrine was rule-like only in the sense of it mandated a certain sequence of, of, sequencing of inquiries. First, you look at the statute de novo. Second, you ask whether the agency interpretation is reasonable. In practice, what it is is two very uh, cosmically broad standards, clarity and reasonableness, linked together in a composite. So, if you have willful judges, or if you have judges that are just not diligent, there's lots of room there to uh, uh, misbehave uh, uh, under the Chevron test itself. So I, I, your, your question is a very serious one. Uh, there needs to be perhaps some attitudinal change, uh, and, and how, if at all, can the Supreme Court uh, try to make that attitudinal change without, except, other than by acting by example? Yeah. I think part of the problem with Chevron is it was very unclear on what, you know, quote unquote, those traditional tools of statutory interpretation are that one is supposed to use at step one. But that's not just a failing of Chevron. That is a larger failing with statutory interpretation altogether, where the court, courts, if we even look at courts of appeals, they're notoriously inconsistent about when they pick up certain canons of construction, when they're going to use certain rules. There has to be much more guidance on what the order of battle is. How are you going to think through step one? What is it that the Supreme Court is going to set up as the methodology for the lower courts? They haven't done that. And I, I don't want to be too harsh on Justice Stevens because I think part of the issue is historical here. When you were looking at 1984, you largely found judges 
who, who, you know, basically all fell into a legal process school where there are lots of canons of construction. You kind of know when you're going to pick the best one, and it just takes wisdom, and you do this. Yeah, you, you, it's, it's a different interpretive world at that time. Now there's much more dynamism, at least, in how judges approach statutory interpretation, and I think uh, views that are not consistent with what we saw with judges in 1984. But if they're going to have inconsistent views, well say what those are. Say how you should go about interpreting that statute since you're providing guidance. It, it's a little bit cowardly to say as the Supreme Court, well, those those lower courts, you know, you just don't know what they're going to do at step one. They just may pass the buck way too quickly when you haven't given the instruction on how they should approach that step. And likewise, haven't haven't, I, I, there's no, also no recognition as to what the role of, of the so-called substantive canons of construction are, right? I mean, this is a point that Justice Kagan made recently. Mm -hmm. And if you look at Chevron as a substantive canon of deference and then look at the, at the Congress's failure to repudiate um, Chevron as another substantive canon that gives life to the substantive canon, but the court has never sort of told us what we're supposed to do with these substantive canons, um, it, it, does, it does get rather tricky. We've talked, a couple have made point, the point that the court has simply never said Chevron has one step that we review the agent and agency interpretation for reasonableness using the traditional tools. Is that a sufficient outcome here? Is that something we might see? And, and are, there, you know, are there predictions, I suppose, as to what, what will happen? I very strongly disagree with the one-step idea. Uh, the, the utility of the two-step approach to Chevron is that uh, it, it establishes um, whether or not the agency has discretion to uh, change its mind in the future. So if the case is decided at step one, the court has determined that the law has a uh, determinate meaning which is binding on the agency uh, uh, going forward. And so that sort of ends the room for agency uh, discretion to uh, alter its legal position in the future. If it goes to step two, the question is whether the agency's interpretation of a unclear statute is permissible or not. Uh, the court could uphold the agency at step two, as it usually does, or it could occasionally disapprove it at step two. But whichever outcome, going to step two indicates that this is a matter as to which the agency has ongoing discretion. If you collapse everything into reasonableness and one step, then you're just back to the pre-Chevron regime, where courts would use an eclectic mix of an interpretive uh, canons uh, in reviewing agency decisions, and it was very uncertain uh, whether agencies had further discretion to reinterpret or not. Agree? Disagree? I think that's right. I mean, I think, I mean, it gets back to kind of Justice Kavanaugh's view of, well, at least how I read Justice Kavanaugh's view is that step one would be, and you would still have a reasonableness review even without Chevron. It would just be once you determine that the statute of the laws run out, the agency can policy, you make policy, that's where you have. But, you know, I, I agree with Tom. I think that's the, definitely each step plays an independent role, even though step two, the agency almost always wins. Um, now, could we see that get more, you know, more you know, reinvigorated with more of an APA arbitrary and capricious review? Yeah, and Tom's in his, in his book, and, and both I think both all three of us agree that step two can play can play a bigger role uh, than it does right now. Putting putting more weight on the consistency over time of the agency interpretation, which would produce some stability. You wouldn't have every change in administration either adopting or repudiating net neutrality rules for uh, internet service providers. Yeah, and we haven't really talked about that, but you know the. The, the, the falling out of love with Chevron in your comic book story, 
you know, I, you know, one really simple view is like there's a change in the courts, right? The courts have become more conservative. But that, that's like chronologically just not right. I mean, the, the distaste for Chevron happened long before that. Um, uh, and, and I think like when you think about why, I think one of the reasons why is what, you know, what, what Tom is saying is that you see kind of a rise of presidentialism of instead of trying to go through Congress, um, doing it on your own and getting kind of more aggressive with older statutes. I think that's kind of part of it is, uh, and I think particularly the second term of the Obama administration, all of the Trump administration and a lot of the Biden administration, it's not like 30 degree course corrections or changes. It's 180 or 90 and, you know, and, and it's kind of jarring and I do think that leads to a lot less predictability in the law, to put it mildly. And I think that's, that is one of the issues that, I, that, I, that the court and, and Chevron skeptics are struggling with or re responding to uh, is the fact that we have a different, we're using regulations, it seems, in a different way. Now maybe some of the other panelists later in the day will disagree with me on that. Uh, but I do think that's part of the story of why you have some distaste with, with, with Chevron as a continuing doctrine. Yeah, I agree with that. The, the, the simplistic political science story that Chevron is just basically one tool that the uh, uh, conservative justices are, are using to try to push back against policies they don't like is inconsistent with the firm commitment to Chevron uh, by the mostly Republican appointed justices during the Clinton administration and with the fact that once the Trump administration got going, the opposition to Chevron only grew among the justices where the political science, the sort of one-on-one -on -one, you know, correlation between political attitudinalism and supporter opposition to Chevron would suggest that all of a sudden they should have turned on a dime and become rabid Chevron fans, but that didn't happen. They became even more opposed to him. Is it too naive to ask the question, why not just amend the APA? <laughs> and, and resolve this and all sorts of other questions that have, have arisen since that grand compromise was, was passed. It, it has been a moment uh, since, since 1946, right? So wh why not train some of the fire on that question? I think it's a fair question, and, and I think it's something I know we have talked about before. There are so many areas of the APA that need updating, clarifying, and you just can't get it through. They just will not send it, um, usually even through committee, and then it can't even get through one of the chambers. And these are things where we have bipartisan agreement. Things aren't terribly controversial in, in providing more detail, details, let's say, on even just rulemaking or adjudication and how things fit in with different components. But I, I would also turn that question around a bit. I mean, if the idea is that if Congress really wants to keep something, then it should have to act for it. Well, that would apply in all other situations, too. If we're talking about something the Biden administration is doing on environmental law, then I think the same argument would be, well, I guess we'll, we'll let the Biden administration do it. And if Congress doesn't want, doesn't want to do something that the Biden administration is doing, then it should enact the law. But that isn't how this, the current Supreme Court acts at all. So I would just want to know why this question. Why is this the one that Congress has to respond to if it doesn't want the law to change, but we don't do that in other contexts? And I, I want to zoom out on this because, you know, the, 
This is often brought as an argument for why like starter sizes should be less. The APA has been amended less than 20 times, although it was amended last year and the Ministry of Law Officer was sort of like geeked out about yeah. this because it added this new provision. You have to provide a hundred word simple summary on, on a website about what a rule is, which is super exciting. <laughs> but, um, but no, but like, I, I want to really, really push back on this because the Administrative Procedure Act is a framework statute that sets the default rules for how agencies regulate and how courts review agency action. But those default rules, as all of you that practice in different regulatory fields know, Congress departs dramatically from those in particular regulatory fields. They pass hundreds of statutes reauthorizing agencies, amending statutes that govern agencies, where they adopt a different standard of review, as Kenna talked about earlier, or they adopt a different process that has to be applied, or they preclude judicial review altogether. Uh, and, and so when I think about should we like amend the APA to fix Chevron because Chevron like, needs to be fixed, which I don't necessarily think it does, but Congress is already tinkering on a regular basis uh, when they reauthorize statutes that govern agencies. And when they do so, they do so against the backdrop of Chevron. And that's why I think when you think about settled expectations, and I don't want to use the word reliance interest because that bothers me, because like, but settled expectations about how the administrative state functions, Chevron's a core part of that uh, on the Hill. I want to expand the conversation. I think we have uh, make a, 50 more. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to go to Professor Mel, but if there are questions and we have the ability to have the mass, we'll do that um, after Professor Merrill's point. Yeah, I just wanted to make a point about the empirical studies that uh, Chris was talking about, um, uh, showing that there's a correlation between um, the application of the Chevron Doctrine and, and affirmance of uh, agency uh, decisions, uh, legal interpretations, without regard to whether they're liberal or conservative or the panel is liberal or conservative. Um, I'm surrounded now, as many law professors are, by a whole bunch of empiricists, unfortunately. So um, uh, <clears throat> this may mistake correlation for causation. Uh, uh, the problem is that if you're uh, on a panel and you decide to affirm an agency uh, an easy way to do that is to trot out the Chevron Doctrine, which has this historical connotation of being uh, pro-deference. Uh, and so it's an easy way to write an opinion affirming an agency. If you decide to reverse an agency, uh, it's much easier to sort of ignore Chevron or else use some different doctrine that gives you more leeway to do that. So you, it's very difficult to peel apart the causal, causal influence of Chevron and the use of Chevron as an, a, an item of justification in the opinion writing. A, a, a point that you well make in the book where you recount the conference notes and history of the Chevron decision itself, which seems to reveal uh, confusion and, and, and perhaps skepticism about the interpretive methodology, but a desire to simply sort of find a way to land the plane that, uh, that, that was necessary because of the, the CERT grant. So, so perhaps that you know, shows that this has been a problem that goes all the way back to 1984 uh, when the court was first trying to figure out what to do uh, and, and, and maybe was more important than what it thought it was creating. Um, it's the June crunch, it's the explanation yeah, of Chevron. Exactly. Um, let's expand the conversation. I believe there's a microphone. So if you have a question for the panel, please raise your hand and we'll move you over. I see right behind you there's one over there. Hi. Uh, thank you very much. My question is about whether the focus of the litigation is the best place to be as opposed to in terms of what should the courts be doing in deference. It seems that the bigger problem with Chevron was not the theory, courts are not experts, courts are not politically accountable, but the 
operationalization op of that, sorry, I didn't say that well, in terms of many agencies, including my former agency, treated deference as abdication. And so at step two, where you're supposed to be saying, is this reasonable, they would bring nothing to the table, make no record, and say, we win because you have to assume what we want is reasonable. And so just to give an example of what's happening in my little world, which is veterans law, form of administrative law, and what's happened in Kaiser, I just want to get your thoughts on what they've done with Kaiser. So there's a recent case where it called Kearns, where Judge Allen treated Kaiser as step one, this is ambiguous ambiguous. Step two, have you earned deference agency? You say what you want, but you brought nothing to the table explaining why that's your expert opinion, what's the foundation for this, how this leads to a better result, or how this was in question that rose to the political levels of the agencies. So there's a political thing. So you failed to earn deference. So I'm going back to de novo review. I think the other reading is better, so you lose. Could this be more about making agency decision-making more transparent in a way that, where we have a conversation about what does an agency have to do to earn deference from the courts, so it's not just abdication in the face of ambiguity, it's a real question of is there expertise, is there political thought that goes into it that should be owed deference as opposed to this just looks like the opinion of the agency attorney writing the brief um, who doesn't have any of that backing. So, sorry if that was a long question. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, and uh, uh, there's a nice article by Aaron Nielsen and Kristen Hickman uh, a few years back which suggests that Chevron should be limited to uh, interpretations rendered through notice and comment rulemaking. Uh, and I initially thought this was a bit too, too aggressive, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought it makes a lot of sense for precisely the reasons you're saying. But if you use it in rulemaking, you're going to have public participation and you're going to have the agencies under this duty which has been created under the way we understand rulemaking to respond to material objections to their interpretation. And so uh, presumably that would improve the quality of interpretations. I also think that it would help respond to the bias objection that my friend Hamburger and his various mm -hmm. libertarian cohorts have uh, been making. Um, uh, it, I think the bias problem is the most severe when you have an agency that's bringing an enforcement action uh, and the agency prosecutor is arguing for one interpretation and the agency ALJ or, or, or judge that's deciding the case uh, is under some kind of implicit pressure to agree with the agency's view about the law. Uh, with rulemaking, it's not quite so clear to me that there's a bias problem. It's like Congress has told the agency to implement the statute in certain ways through rulemaking, and so everybody gets their chance to be heard, and the agency has to defend its position. And that weeds out bias. It doesn't completely eliminate it, but would help with the bias problem. So I think that, and the, and the truth is that Chevron itself was a rulemaking case, and 90 plus percent, I think, of the Supreme Court Chevron cases have involved rulemaking. Uh, it's creeping over to adjudication, I think, was just an accident of um, path dependency. Once the court did it once, it's felt it had to uphold that in subsequent opinions like Mead. So that, that would be another, uh, another change to step two that I think uh, at some point in time, not in this Loper-Bright uh, uh, case because that was a rulemaking case, but in some future case the court should consider uh, limiting Chevron to rulemaking. 
I, I think related to that, and it's consistent with what Tom is saying, what Chris and I have written separately in a, in a, in a, in a different article, that not only does the court need to provide more guidance at step one, but at step two as well. And kind of the key takeaway we found when we looked at what the Supreme Court did, and then we looked at every time the agency lost at step two, which it was a, a smaller subset of cases, of course, um, what we saw was something that was fairly inconsistent, where you had the court that would say it once once reviewing courts to treat step two as arbitrary and capricious review. And I think that would be really useful because it would then follow kind of the rulemaking ideas. We could import in what we expect to see in a record uh, where you would have to provide the basis for the opinion. The problem is if you read the Supreme Court decisions, they aren't actually doing arbitrary and capricious review at step two. They're doing something we refer to as hypertextualism. They just go back to the text again. They, they don't turn to anything like a record. So then you get this issue in the lower courts, so the lower courts are trying to figure out, well, what is it we're supposed to do? Do we do what you tell us to do, or do we do what you actually do in, in the cases? And it's a mix. More of them pick up the arbitrary and capricious than some of the other forms, but it's, it's not well resolved. So what could the Supreme Court do? Make it clear that it is arbitrary and capricious review at step two, which would render Chevron more consistent with section 706, because you could tap into the arbitrary and capricious review. We would understand what a record typically looks like for that. And I think it would, as, as Tom said, get us around some of those bias concerns that we have. But it's going to take the court not only saying it, but also doing it in its opinions as well. I just add to that, though. Um, I mean, so it sounds, and Tom's our, um, article in Essa, Amicus Brief, kind of like Kaiserizing Chevron, adding a bunch of steps. And I, I just the one word of caution I have with that is Andrew Hammond and I just spent the last few years reading every Kaiser decision in the lower courts. Mm -hmm. And not surprisingly, it is an absolute train wreck. I mean, courts don't even know what to do. They're not applying the framework. I mean, I think Kagan thought I'm going to be like Scalia. I'm going to have like this really rules-based, as opposed to a standard everyone can follow and apply. And it turns out five steps is probably too many uh, if you're trying to do a rule. Uh, and also, if you can't even get five votes for the pro-deference side of your opinion, like it's not going to end up being a, a very durable uh, approach. So I'm worried if, from a predictability, rule of law, you know, uniformity in law, if we end up with a Kaiser-like Chevron, uh, it's just going to just cause chaos in how lower courts approach. Right now, you got two questions, and I agree with you; they are a little bit more standards, but the standards and more rules. I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah. But they're two questions, and they're really just one because once you get to reasonable, you almost the agency almost always wins. But the five step is going to end up, I think, just being a disaster for how lower courts implement it. Well, and just briefly to that point, if if one of the concerns is what do you do if we get rid of Chevron, and one leading idea is that you would move to Skidmore. Well, Skidmore already has, depending on how you count, somewhere between three to six factors. It includes all of those things which could persuade. So it makes it quite a bit uh, more capacious. I, I think one thing not to forget is before Chevron, Skidmore in some courts had turned to an 11-factor test. <laughs> you know, it just became unworkable. And so I, I think we kind of have to worry about factor creep in any of these um, uh, it, the tests. It, it is use. fascinating, though. Like in Loper Bright, the petitioners, I think, very strategically don't tell us what to replace Chevron with which I, I'm guessing at oral argument, this is gonna, the court's gonna spend a lot of time uh, in kind of what Will Bode calls, calls you know, Justice Barrett's look before you leap approach. Like, I'm not just gonna get rid of a doctrine 
without figuring out what's going to happen afterwards, which I fully support and love, uh, uh, you're going you're gonna to see the court have to really grapple with that. And that might be one reason they don't get rid of Chevron. One of the main reasons is that there's not a replacement that they can envision what the replacement will do on the ground. Mark Chenna with Civil, uh, New Civil Liberties Alliance. So I, I work for Hamburger and represent the folks in Relentless. So um, just to let you know where I'm coming from. Um, the, the panel did the same thing that the court did in Kaiser, which is completely ignore the two strongest constitutional arguments against Chevron. Uh, Professor Barnett, you mentioned the Article Three argument, but you caricatured it as one sentence from Marbury, which is not what the argument is at all. Um, don't have time to give the entire argument here, but of course, Philip Hamburg does that in his Chevron bias uh, article, and you can go reread that uh, if you haven't read it already. But the argument that I wanted to talk about or, or ask a question about is the, which, which Professor Merrill did uh, allude to there at the end of, uh, of the question period, is the bias argument, the due process argument, that judges have a duty to, uh, to impartially judge the matter before them, and when they're replacing their own independent judgment by deferring to the judgment of the executive branch, which is one of the parties before them, then they are systematically engaging in bias, which is contrary to the process of law. So my question to the panel is, what is your strongest argument against that, which I perceive to be an extremely strong constitutional objection to Chevron deference? I can start. Um, we, we may have to agree to disagree over how I have framed the argument. I've written an entire article <laughs> responding to those arguments, and they aren't terribly well developed. They do tend to come back to the same notion this needs to be de novo. Why? Because courts have a duty to say what the law is. But you can read my article. I'll be happy to reread his again as well. But I think on the due process side, I, I think you have to ask, well, what else does that mean? Um, in, in other forms of cases where we have things that are a, a form of deference, so let's start with habeas cases. Well, with habeas cases, you, you, the way we have uh, EDPA set up right now, courts must defer to the state interpretations of federal law. I mean, is, is that a bias in favor because the, the, the courts aren't using their own independent judgment? What about um, enforcement of arbitrators' decisions? Um, not all arbitrations are actually voluntary. There are some, um, including in one that was a case uh, uh, decided in the 1980s by the Supreme Court where it's mandatory for anyone that um, uh, seeks certain licensing from, from the government. In those cases, there can be legal determinations that are made too, and the court cannot use its independent judgment. Indeed, in some cases, can we're not even sure if they can actually review the legal questions that are provided or if they can under an extremely uh, deferential uh, standard. So I think you've got to then grapple with this question, well, why is it okay sometimes, but not in this one case, especially when we say it's the executive? Why would that create a due process bias question as opposed to perhaps a separation of powers question because you're invoking the executive branch? Yeah, I, mean, I just have to say on that, like. Um if the argument's just about purely private rights, you know, which Hamburger's first book was all about and not about the 99% of the rest of the administrative state, which deals with welfare programs, public benefits, immigration. I, I mean, I think there is some purchase, and we do in our brief and in our essay flag that if it's a purely private right, Chevron is complicated, more complicated there. But it's a pretty, I don't want to say lazy, but I just did. 
lazy argument to, to bring that out to all of Chevron and say there's a due process issue. And, and I have read Hamburger's article several times. It's just honestly, it's just not a very good argument for getting rid of Chevron generally. It might be a good argument for purely, purely private rights. Um, but, but, but it just doesn't stand uh, much scrutiny beyond that. You have to get rid of a whole bunch of other history, tradition, habeas, everything else that Kent mentioned uh, in that view. And that's just not, it would fly in the face of what we've been doing you know, since the founding. So I think you'd have a big issue you'd have to deal with. John Beccioni, I'm counsel of record in Relentless. In, awesome. they, the, in this case, um, one, of the, one of the things okay. here is that the, uh, the question isn't really a question of uh, expertise of the agency. It's a matter of who pays. And this who pays question strikes me as a core congressional question. That's what they do all the time, who pays. And there's no suggestion that they've delegated the who pays question. This isn't the sort of thing, how many herring can you take? What should the quotas be? How big the net should be? It's not like that. It's a congressional question of who pays. And so uh, why should they be given deference and why should Chevron be used? Because I think one of the problems is everything becomes Chevron because it's so easy. Read the First Circuit's Relentless. It's just sloppy. It's not like Srinivasan in DC. It's just sloppy. Yeah, step one, step two, I don't know. But they can do it. So that's my question. There's no, there's no agency competence in who pays. And they actually didn't like how much Congress was appropriating, which also seems like they're going against Congress. So that's my question. I can respond briefly with that. Um, one, I, I, I don't see an inconsistency between those two things. So as I mentioned, we filed an amicus brief in favor of neither party. I think Chevron should continue to be the, the deference regime that applies to the um, to these questions of agency interpretations. But the reason we didn't file it in behalf of a party is, personally, I, I was um, persuaded by Judge Walker's dissent in Loper Bright. I thought even applying the the framework that the the fishermen should still win the case at the end of the day. I didn't think it decided the matter. It was a separate question. Then, just briefly on the second part, where you said that the the assignment of, of fees doesn't deal with expertise. It's essentially kind of making this policy decision on, on, on cost, which, which may be different. I, I think that's actually very insightful. And in part of what I would say is when I was doing my analysis over why Congress decided to say to the OCC, you get Skidmore deference, you don't get Chevron deference for those preemption decisions. When you went back to the legislative history where they were having the committee meetings and the committee reports, it was all because they thought the OCC wasn't using its expertise. They thought it was being driven by something else. And they said, if the agency's not using its expertise, it shouldn't get this kind of deference. And so that's why they turned to Skidmore with it. I think that understanding that, that Questions that involve the agency's expertise are the ones that deserve Chevron deference should be taken more seriously. It was actually points that Justice Breyer had been making for decades, um, but it kind of fell on deaf ears on I, the court. I want to just jump in, though. Uh, I don't, I mean, I, I'm actually, I, I think this is a fairly easy step one case the agency should lose. But like, but, but on the, but on your idea of a policy, no, 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 no. A agencies have a lot of expertise in deciding regulatory schemes. It includes who pays what fees and who's, who carries the burden of the regulatory process. And if it's a major question, you might have your major questions doctrine. I don't view this as a major question. And I would not love an idea of the court declaring 
that agencies don't have expertise in deciding how to shift costs among different regulatory parties, because that's what they do. That's where they do have a lot of expertise. So I'm, I'm not a fan on that part, but on the step one issue, I agree with Kent. As always, the best conversations are the ones that end too soon. I want to thank the center. I want to thank George Mason. And on behalf of the panel, I want to thank all of you for your participation today. We look forward to seeing you throughout the day. Thank you again. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter. Center.